0: Before I begin today, I want to say a word about my brothers, the session, and Pastor Norman in light of what we heard from them today. Uh, This is a hard chapter for our church, Um, but as hard as it's been, I have to say, uh, I've also really been inspired by these men. I was in almost every meeting with them in the past couple of months. And what I saw were four very different people who somehow maintained a deep respect and honor for each other. And let me tell you something, that is not as common as you might think, especially in tough times. And not only that, I could tell in all their decision-making, the driving question was always, is this loving for our church? And I'm so deeply proud of that. Of course, they're not perfect. But I love them for that. So Curtis, if he's here, uh, Matt, Stephen, thank you, my brothers, for your model of humility today. And Norman, thank you for shepherding us. I learned a lot about Christ from our brothers. And we definitely have to grow, but we're going to go through it together in love. Thank God. Uh, well, good morning again. It's a privilege for me to bring the word to you today. Uh, We're continuing our series in First Timothy, which Pastor Norman introduced last week. And as he said, we're doing this as part of our effort to love God this year by digging deeper into scripture. So we'll be going through the entire book one passage at a time. Now, of course, they're going to be difficult texts, but as long as we approach them with humility, I think there's a chance for us to mature in the word this year. Well, let me read today's passage and then pray. Uh, Just letting you know, there's some language in here that sounds harsh, but I'll try to unpack it as we go along. Uh, 1 Timothy 1, 3-20. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Uh, Dear God, your word is perfect, reviving the soul. Teach us and feed us again, Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Uh, Sound Doctrine. What comes to your mind when you hear those two words? Sound doctrine. Uh, let me tell you the parable of the onion. Uh, a long time ago, there was a peasant woman who had a reputation for being wicked. And when she died, she didn't leave a single good deed behind. Um, and the spirits caught her and placed her in hell. But she had a guardian angel, and this angel wondered if there was even one good thing she did so she could tell that to God, he could tell that to God and ask for mercy. Uh, well, after thinking, he said to God, one time she pulled up an onion in her garden and gave it to a beggar woman. And God answered, take that onion and hold it out to her in hell and let her take hold and be pulled out. And if you can pull her out, let her come to paradise. But if the onion breaks, then the woman must stay where she is. So the angel ran to the woman and held out the onion to her. Come, he said, catch hold and I'll pull you out. And he began cautiously pulling her out. And when he had just about got her up, the other people in hell, seeing her being drawn out, began catching hold of her legs so they could go with her. Uh, And as they held on, the onion didn't break. It stayed intact. Uh, But when she saw them hanging on to her, she yelled, this is my chance, my onion, not yours, and started kicking them. And as soon as she did that, the onion broke, and the woman fell back forever, and the angel went away weeping. Now, uh, obviously, this is not a gospel-centered story. There's no grace in it and it's just a parable, but it paints a vivid picture for us because sometimes when we think about sound doctrine, we focus so much on how we have everything together and how we have the correct theology and how we're on track, uh, like holding onto that onion, that we forget what sound doctrine is supposed to be for. Uh, we're not supposed to preserve theology to be intelligent, uh, no when First Timothy talks about sound doctrine, which he does a lot, um, it's describing something that's supposed to bring us together in love and help us love God more faithfully. We're not always going to get the Bible right. Reformed theology is not always correct. But at least we know the goal is to pursue unity and faithfulness in Jesus, and that's why we try to listen to him and listen to each other the best we can. Look what it says in verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. And that's what I hope we can keep in mind as we go through the text today. Three points. Number one, a pure heart. Number two, a good conscience. And number three, a sincere faith. All taken from verse 5. First, a pure heart. One of the reasons Paul kept talking about sound doctrine in his letters is that there were a lot of false doctrines coming in to influence the church. Um, And by false doctrine, I mean philosophies that were directly in contrast with the person and work of Jesus. Uh, so he wanted Timothy to preach the gospel against some of these philosophies, especially in Ephesus, which was a very pluralistic and metropolitan city, which I think Pastor Norman might get into in the future. Now Paul doesn't say specifically what false teachings he's referring to, but we can guess uh, from different historical clues. Uh, One possibility is that he's talking about Jewish legalism, which taught that you needed to keep the Mosaic law above everything else, and not recognizing God's grace or salvation. That's why in verse four he says these teachers devote themselves to myths and genealogies because they were overly focused on Old Testament genealogies and interpretations and rabbinic traditions. Another possibility is that he's talking about early Gnosticism, uh, which was a belief that greater knowledge about God could be attained through rejecting the physical world and the body and gaining mystical enlightenment. That's proto-Gnosticism. And a third possibility is that he's talking about Greek influence, Greek mythologies and how the world is basically dualist, good and evil equally clashing. Now sometimes, in Paul's day, there was a lot of combining of these together, not just one thing. It was a cocktail of religious traditions and philosophies mixing in with the church. That's called syncretism, and Paul had to deal with a lot of syncretism, especially as the church was existing alongside various cultures. But here I wanna focus on why Paul was so upset about these heresies. Um, And again, it wasn't so much that the people of God were getting their theology wrong. Um, No, he said certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away. What are these? He's talking about the components of love. By swerving from love, they've wandered into vain discussion Desiring to be teachers, not knowing what they're saying. See, Paul wants to focus the body of Christ on how to love as his Jesus loved them. And, and love is complicated. It's not all flowers and rainbows. I'll get into that. But what we see here in this early section is that when the glory of you tends to overshadow the preciousness of others, that's when you know you're going the wrong way. Um, Love is, by nature, supposed to be selfless. Of course, there's self-love, but love as a lifestyle is supposed to be about about treasuring somebody else. See, Jewish legalism said, you perform and get with the traditional in crowd. Um, Gnosticism said, you have this mystical enlightenment. Uh, Greek myth said, you're the hero against evil, and so these things led to vain discussions. Vain meaning empty, but also self-absorbed. People wanted to be teachers, having this authority. Uh, But Paul says they don't know what they're talking about, not because they're not smart, but because they missed the point at what it means to be a teacher, as he explains to Timothy later in his letters. Being a teacher like Jesus means you're laying your life down for somebody else, not being an expert. Uh, Family of God, what is the syncretism, the mixture of worldviews that we need to resist in New York City? Uh, Of course there's literal religious pluralism. Flushing has a history of religious diversity and that's a beautiful thing. We can learn from our Jewish, uh, Hindu, and Buddhist neighbors. That's not what I'm afraid will creep in here. Um, What I'm afraid will creep into this, our sacred family space, is the toxic mindset that efficiency is always correct. Um, Or the mindset that my relationships experiences and commitments are primarily for my consumption, consumerism. Uh, Or the vulgar American dream that says material comfort and success for my children at whatever cost. A competition that says, I'm sorry, I have to be on top. These are things that I'm afraid will pollute our youth group our precious community here of vulnerable people. I'm afraid of how powerful those influences can be on us, especially when we're weak. I've been part of churches that have broken apart because of these things. And sometimes it's like the story of the fish saying to another fish, How's the water? And the second fish being confused because he doesn't know what water is. Uh, we're swimming in it here in New York City. How aware are we of the effect of these worldviews on our souls? Family of God, a pure heart doesn't mean you're naive. Uh, it's the opposite. A pure heart means that you're hyper aware like Paul and Timothy were, of what could distract us from a vision of Jesus and of each other. And you resist. Well, a second point, a good conscience. Um, In verse eight, Paul talks about the law of God. And here he's most likely referring to the Mosaic law, which includes the 10 commandments, as you know. Now, this part could get a little confusing, but we could break it down. Uh, First, he says the law is good, if one uses it lawfully. Uh, So some people these days reacting to legalism say it's all about grace. Uh, It's not about us keeping the law, but how we can't keep the law because we're imperfect, and we just need Jesus and his grace to make us better. Um, But theologian John Calvin clarified that it's more complex than that. God's law has at least three purposes. First, it's to show us how imperfect we are. Second, it's to restrain evil and maintain order in society. But third, it's to give us a guideline for how to follow Jesus once we've been saved by him. That's called the third use of the law. Jesus saves you by grace and forgiveness, but then he helps you live out the law with him. So that, I think, is what Paul means when he says using the law lawfully. You're saved by grace, but you're still following the law with Jesus helping you get holier each day. And then he says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. So he's giving a caveat here. Yes, the law is for believers to follow lawfully, but the law is also for those who need to be shown their sin and rebellion against God. Um, Sometimes people who are not following Jesus need, just like Christians, a mirror placed against them to reveal their brokenness. And then he lists some kinds of people that he says are living contrary to sound doctrine in the gospel of Christ. These kinds of people need to be shown a better way. Now this is not saying that Christians are good and non-Christians are evil. In fact, sometimes it's Christians who need the most grace. This is just saying that the law can be used to confront those who haven't met Jesus yet or are straying from Jesus. that's why later on he says he gave Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan so that they might learn. It's not saying that he abandoned them to the dark side. It's saying sometimes when people are so hard-hearted God can use even the enemy to point them back to the law to be restored. So, so that's an example of the law being used for restoration. Well I'm not going to go through each part of this vice list But just as an aside here, I want to make a comment about verse 10, men who practice homosexuality. Now, this really is an aside because this could take a whole other teaching. And of course, you can come talk to me after if you want to discuss it. Um, But Pastor Norman and I have been going back and forth about this topic, and in this particular passage, the word homosexuality is two Greek words, porneos, meaning fornicator, And arsenokoitas, which is rare and possibly a word made up by Paul, meaning men who go to bed with men. Um, But in my view, we have to be careful not to import our modern conception of gay relationships into the texts. Uh, There was a lot of, uh, there was a whole cultural environment that Paul was speaking to. And in that day, one societal behavior was male prostitution or illicit sexual activity with young men, sometimes teenagers. And that, of course, was condemned by the church as sexually immoral. So I'm not gonna go into this any more than that, but I just wanted to help us read scripture more closely today in this particular passage because just because the ESV says men who practice homosexuality, it doesn't mean Paul was talking about the same thing as what we mean by gay relationships today. Now I know that opens up a whole can of worms in your mind. Please don't hesitate to reach out if you need to talk about that. We're just doing some exegesis today. Um, Well, going back to this list of brokenness that Paul gives. I want to apply this to our hearts this morning. Why do we reflect on our shortcomings? Uh, Why do we submit to repentance? And and why are we honest with each other, sharing how we've gone astray or hurt one another or hurt ourselves? Uh, Look at what Paul says, there's a gospel of the glory of the blessed God. In Philippians, he says, there's a surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. It's not about assuaging our guilt every Sunday uh, or staying clean or whatever it is. No, according to Paul, there's a kind of depth of fellowship that we miss with Jesus and with each other if we don't confront the darkness in us regularly. Um, Of course, we can live safe and coasting lives, staying busy, vaguely confessing and thinking about God here and there, but we're missing a whole part of our soul in this life and true healthy intimacy, being known with Christ and his people if we're not actively fighting to clear up those things that dirty our conscience under the law of God. It's like living life on 240p, Uh, so family of God, I want to ask you, what are the things you're hiding? Uh, because I know you might be hiding some things. Uh, or, or what are the things that keep burdening you year after year? Uh, are you ready to bring them before God, who will no doubt be tender and gracious with you? Uh, see, this is real self-love, for you to be free from that shameful weight by opening yourself up to Him, your Savior, And if you're brave enough, opening up to a trusted and mature sister or brother. That's how we can heal finally and get closer to the glory of God that Paul is talking about. That's a good conscience. And lastly, a sincere faith. This is my favorite part of our passage today. I almost feel like I could just read it and sit down. I thank him, Paul says, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. And he says, formerly he was an enemy of God, ignorant and violent, but grace overflowed for him. And then he starts preaching. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm I'm the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Church, what does it mean to know Jesus? It means that when you think back on your life to your lowest, most embarrassing moments, like Paul does here, you find that while any reasonable person would have judged you, Jesus heart was overflowing with compassion and mercy for you in your worst times he wants to hold you closer to himself when you say God I'm feeling a little guilty right now I'll come to you later he pulls you closer to himself and embraces you he pursues you endlessly and he dreams for your perfect future that's the kind of Savior that he is because he's filled with patience for you Tomorrow morning, you could wake up, oh man, I messed up again. Jesus says, I'm waiting to be with you because he always wants you to come home to him. And that's who we put our faith in to be healed daily. That's our Jesus. So what does this mean for us uh, King's Cross? Uh, we're going through a difficult time. You don't have to be shy about that. We're experiencing hurt from each other, uh, miscommunication, confusion, and uh, dealing with differences. These are all things co- a community can go through. And I started off this sermon saying it's not about being smart or having the correct theology. But if there's one thing I do want us to be smart about and think deeply about, it's exploring what does love look like in various situations, this complex love that Paul describes. Because sometimes love is going to look like distance for a little while, and that's all right. Distance to be safe and process some things for yourself not every relationships going to be mended and We need wise counsel to figure out if love means distance in this particular season Uh, But other times love is confrontation not fighting but mature talking out of what hurt and what could have been helpful and listening to each other Love is studying somebody, not in a creepy way, but trying to understand that a particular person really might have wounds and histories that drive them to think or act in a certain way. Uh, Whether or not their behavior is warranted is still another conversation of love. Love is making the effort to move each other just a little closer to Jesus, whether it's through sitting in silence, being tender, calling out, or lifting up a prayer. It's a pure heart and good conscience and a sincere faith, not only for ourselves, but for the body, us in here, existing together. King's Cross, he loves us, that's a fact, but we just gotta ask him how to be more like him to each other if we're gonna move forward. Let me read this African American spiritual before we go to the table today. Uh, We really are a mess of people in here, uh, but in these kinds of trials, our precious neighbors And children are going to watch how we move forward and I hope that we would confuse them um, confuse them by not handling things in a corporatist capitalist efficient and competitive manner like so many other spaces out there do and if they're confused and if they're curious I pray as Peter says in 1st Peter 3 that we're ready to give them a reason for the hope that is in us. uh, That we're held by somebody beyond this world. Uh, Look at the people lining up for the table with you today. You'll see some individuals very different from you. But remember, it's one bread and one cup from Jesus given to us to share. So here's the spiritual. Let us break bread together on our knees Let us break bread together on our knees. When I fall on my knees with my face to the rising sun, O Lord, have mercy on me. Let us drink wine together on our knees. Let us drink wine together on our knees. When I fall on my knees with my face to the rising sun, O Lord, have mercy on me. Let us praise God together on our knees. Amen.